It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a great one in store today. It is Friday, which means we're going to have a musical guest in the third hour of our three-hour tour. Uh, Mindy Love from uh, Two-Tone Corduroy will be phoning in. Plus, we'll hear some new music from Two-Tone Corduroy as well. Uh, in the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour, I'm going to be talking to one of the authors from the Rick Riordan Presents series. Taylor K. Mesia has, uh, I think, the fourth and final uh, book in her Paula Santiago series, this one called Paulo Santiago and the River of Tears. But first, joining me by phone, we're going to talk with... Um, the author of uh, a book called Silas Dillon of Cary County, which uh, takes a sobering look at uh, some of the unsettling realities of the American foster care system. And uh, he joins me now by phone. Uh, Cliff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I I appreciate the invite. Um, Cliff, this is... uh, um, an interesting story, but sadly not unique. Very true. Do you have, um, when we talk about the the troubled foster care system, do you have any sense for, um, uh, I don't know, statistically how how badly off it is? Are there... um, how many kids are in the foster care system that aren't finding homes? Well, in the states, of course, it's uh, constantly transitioning kids coming in and out. But in the states, there are hundreds of thousands in various state and uh, city systems. And um, it is increasing partly because of population increase and partly because of uh, the breakdown of the family. Now, you, uh, in, in this particular story, it, uh, it, it talks about Silas Dillon, the, the main character, who has 
sort of mastered it despite a a really horrible start in life he seems to have uh, established himself pretty well at 40 years old um, being a, a father of uh, well six kids because he has uh, two uh, natural and uh, what I guess it's uh, he's got a big family and he uh, yeah he I've got the numbers wrong but yeah, I've got the numbers a little bit wrong, but but the point is, is he has a very stable family life, and he's a minister at his church, and uh, by by all accounts and all reckoning, he's doing very well after uh, a, a pretty uh, lonesome and loathsome beginning uh, from being given up for adoption uh, immediately following his birth, and then back and forth with his mom and uh, all of that. Um, but I, I, I was reading that you have a personal experience with foster care that helped inform you in writing this book, I suspect. Yes, exactly. Um, the story is obviously fictional, but it's a pretty much a composite of a couple of our kids and kids of parents we met while we were involved in the system. Um, I did open the book with a prologue and close with an epilogue as a, a frame story to just eliminate any suspense regarding, is Silas Dillon going to make it? So I open it up with um, a, an adult, Silas Dillon, who is a survivor. And we see that he's, uh, his experiences have proven to be um, an impetus for him to make a difference in the system. And um, Silas goes through seven different homes as his mother is uh, always reluctant to relinquish him in a system um, in Cary County, it's a, the prototype of Staten Island, New York, where depending on the family court judge, uh, there's a lot of um, favor for the, just for lack of a better word, deadbeat parent who can't get his or her or both acts together. And anyhow, we, um, after my wife and I adopted three foreign children, after we uh, had two of our own birth children, uh, one passing away, we always wanted to, to adopt. So we adopted some foreign kids, and after the third one, we were pretty well tapped out because there's a lot of costs around uh, doing that. It's not a profit thing for anybody, but it's, it's costly because of legal fees and flight fees and medical fees, all sorts of fees. So we, uh, we, we had a heart to do it again. So we said, let's try domestically. And there's this foster to adopt program. And we got entrenched in a battle in court with a mom having, uh, you know, her child for three years with the idea that we were going to adopt. She wanted to resurface and it turns out, pretend she got her act together and get her daughter back, but we wouldn't have it. Uh, we would have given our daughter up for her if we were convinced, but we weren't. 
So anyhow, we got in a legal battle. So that uh, experience and meeting other people in similar experiences um, was the motivation for me to write this story, which is purely fictional but very, very real. Well, that's so that's how that happened. That that's just it. Um, it's how much of this is is Cliff, and how much of it is uh, made up, and how much of it is uh, based on on things you've uh, witnessed firsthand. Yeah. Um, well, the the battle uh, that parents, uh, one set of parents, especially in the story, uh, went through is very much partly our story. Um, again, it's stretched because it's fiction and um, intended to be dramatic. Um, but again, not only our story, but other people's stories. Um, we kind of, I kind of blended to create this uh, drama, this suspense uh, surrounding how Silas is going to make it, bouncing back and forth feeling isolated and alienated and alone and just having that innate, gee, I wish I could be part of a permanent, stable family, um, you know, working against his own um, identity and, and all sorts of uh, situations you can imagine. So um, the, the court battle and the, the frustration uh, with a parent who won't really think about the best interest of her own child, considering she, in, in, in my wife and my experience, she should have been adopted when she was young. She grew up in a bad experience, but, you know, it was all about her and, you know, the happiness that her child and having her child and her desire to be stable... Um, that became her motivation and her, you know, harm on her own child. It's a sad story, and you could see that there's repercussions and there's a, a generational effect. So, um, yeah, that's that's that. How often um, do you think that that kids like uh, Silas Dillon? Um, does in this story with your uh, in your book um, bounce back or bounce back and forth between uh, you know the the state custody and foster homes well that's just it depending on the jurisdiction and depending on um, that family court judge that decides uh, well the parent is the client, or the child is the client. Um, it could go on and on right into adolescence, which is where all the harm takes place. Um, there are good foster homes, and there are bad foster homes. There are well-intentioned people, and there are people who, you know, are looking for, you know, actually finances to help them get along and they neglect and sometimes abuse and while um, there is a protocol and a system where um, you know they're vetted and um, it's, it's 
determined whether people are fit or not. There's such a need for foster parents that very often they pack kids into one house or they just make do or they give a stamp of approval when maybe uh, it shouldn't be. And um, I don't have, you know, actual statistics. Each state works differently. Some are more lenient, some are tough. Um, but it's uh, there's a stereotypical problem, and that stereotype is very often sadly accurate. Well, and the economics are, are kind of strange because the uh, federal government pays uh, a, a stipend to um, state agencies for every child removed from a home not not meant as an incentive but you know as a way to support financing their hey, operation yeah. and um and and then the flip side of that is the state then pays foster parents a stipend and if uh, w- what you're suggesting is that in many cases the money isn't spent necessarily on the children exactly and uh, again, there's a lot of neglect, and so-called foster parents have often a, a way of putting on a good show. And um, yeah, their 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 intentions are misdirected. Um, they take advantage, and kids lose, <coughs> and. Uh, the sad reality is foster kids need more attention very often than um, your, your ordinary kids because of, you know, the baggage they carry, the self-identity problems they, they have. And um, this is just a condition. Uh, it's not like I'm pointing blame at anybody. It's, it's the malady that's in our world. And... Um, People who love people really need to step up and, and think about the youngest, most vulnerable ones. That's what I tried to um, magnify as a theme in this this novel. Well, it's a fascinating uh, book and a fascinating topic, Cliff. And uh, I, I appreciate you spending time with me. I have to um, take a break here. Can you stick around for four or five minutes and then we'll talk some more in the, the next segment? I, pre- I appreciate like, that. I could, read a, I, could read a, I could read an excerpt too if you'd like. Well, yeah, let's do that when uh, let's do that when we come back. Okay. All right. My guest is uh, Clifford Schrage. I'm saying Clifford, although he goes by Cliff, because when you say Cliff Schrage, it sounds like Cliff's rage. Uh, <laughs> but he is. <laughs> He he is the uh, it's Cliff. Uh, if you if you type in cliffshrag.com or Clifford, my web page will come up. Oh, forgive me, Cliff. Do you pronounce it Shrag? Shrag, yes. Okay, I'll I'll try to keep that in mind. <laughs> okay. We're gonna we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back with more with Cliff right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, the author of a uh, book about uh, that, that focuses on uh, uh, really kind of the broken aspects of the foster care system in this country. Uh, the book is called Silas Dillon of Cary County. The author is uh, Clifford Schrag, and um, who goes by Cliff. Cliff, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, Cliff. Now, we mentioned, uh, kind of teased it before the break, that uh, that you were going to read an excerpt from the book. Yeah, I'd like to give a flavor for what's happening. Maybe yeah, let's do that. The reading, uh, uh, the choice I made in writing this from the first-person point of view, uh, I, me, being Silas, and I took a risk that didn't seem to hurt the story, by even having him tell his story from earliest, even infancy, which is unimaginable, but for a reader, I wanted to get into the psyche of um, even uh, the youngest child. So anyhow, I'm going to read a a passage um, until you say, that's enough, uh, from Chapter 7, when Silas is eight years old in the whole process. The story goes from... uh, Again, as I mentioned, there's a frame story where he's an adult reflecting and starts from infancy and moves into adolescence. And by the way, there's a happy ending story. Obviously, you know that from the the prologue. Let me ask this, Cliff, uh, before you start. Um, Is is the entire narration by the 40-year-old Silas? Um. Yes, okay. it is, in the first-person point of view, and again, but we're taken right to that time. We jump back in time from 40 to age 1, and then chapter by chapter moving up into adolescence, and reveals his experiences. So he's telling and his story from, be- he's telling his story from beginning yeah. to end, um, not so much from memory, but as a story, and and he's telling this story. Exactly, just to give the reader the feel, perhaps, of the the, the experience. Gotcha. So that's how it works. Okay, this chapter is called Cicadas. Yes, named after the bugs that time of year, like even now. But anyhow, it goes like this. It was when I was eight that I first had this incipient awareness of my distinction from other kids. At eight, I acquired that budding consciousness of shame about my situation, the mystery of my biological father and my birth mother, Maureen's incompetence. I was a foster child. People all about me, school, the agency, often referred to me that way. Sometimes I was called the foster kid in the neighborhood. In plain English, I was a bastard, begotten and born out of wedlock, illegitimate, and worse, to a prostitute. I guess eight is too early for a kid like me to think heavily about such things, but I did. I thought too much, and I knew a lot, too. Older kids in that neighborhood taught me things, and I understood very well. 
It was then at eight that I began to battle embarrassment. I wished I could say with truthfulness, my mother's dead, or even my mother doesn't want me, or my mother's sick and dying, rather than that she was a drug addict and incompetent. I always wished I could say with truthfulness that my dad was buried, or that he was sick and dying, or even that he was half nuts, a drug addict, incompetent or drunk, rather than say, I don't want to talk about my dad, or say truthfully, I have no idea who my father is. There is an undeniably shameful stigma in having this kind of a messed up background in this part of the world. I understood rationally that it wasn't my fault, but it still attached itself to me. I was the one in it. I was ashamed of it. I felt oddly at fault, almost culpable. It was a passive, inexplicable sort of guilt. It was then when I was eight, just before school, third grade, again in September, about a year after I'd had that appalling dream of my messed up mother yanking my art stuff out of my hands, that Molly was assigned to come one Saturday <clears throat> to take me reluctantly back to Mommy Maureen. Daddy and Mommy Sparks had been contesting this for a year in court at the agency in prayer. They invested their own money on a lawyer to represent them with their insufficient rights and to a legal degree to represent my best interest. I can remember Daddy even used used this ongoing painful ordeal as subjects and metaphors in some of his sermons. They loved me a great deal. My court-appointed law guardian, Leonard Levy, was scarcely involved. I think he was slack and lazy, certainly inconsiderate. He had tens of other cases. Maybe if he'd become acquainted with the actual pulse of my being, stepping beyond the clerical, sterile biography of my life documented on agency report and recommendations around my case, leaping over the thick paper of Silas Aaron Dillon, 0565302263, beholding more than glances of words on formal forms of my history, caring and moving aggressively closer to me, touching, seeing, meeting me, and all those in my life, maybe he would have made a convincing case before a busy judge's bench. Let's let's pause I it. Let's pause it there. Um, okay. Si uh, I was going to call you Silas, and my apologies, Cliff. Um, <laughs> the character, his, his initial spell sad. Was that intentional? Uh, gee, no. But <laughs> I'm the first person to point that out. Interesting. Well, I just thought as you That's were good. reading his, his full name from the uh, um, perspective of uh, court documents and so on, is it Silas Allen Dillon? It was Aaron, but a it's Aaron. still A. That's, that's interesting. Gee, An anyway, that's I, I, I thought that might have been just a little, uh, I don't know, a little nudge-nudge, wink-wink there by the author. But uh, um, but let's, let's go back to the, the beginning of that passage when he's talking about how children that age, at the age of eight, um, shouldn't be comprehending these these huge big issues and and breakdowns in 
family and government and, and all of that, but yet he was. Um, people say kids are resilient and they come back. Um, how, how much do you believe in that resiliency of kids and how much do you believe in that kids can comprehend a lot more than we give them credit for? Well, um, not to get graphic, I grew up in a in a challenging home. I wasn't a foster child or anything, but I had been in situations where embarrassment does emerge in a in a kid's experience when he knows he's different. And uh, as far as that resiliency, I, I am persuaded that human beings are resilient and I wanted to illustrate that through this story again right from the beginning um, but there are effects and I mean this is the human condition we all have stuff in our history we all have parents who are flawed and have made mistakes and maybe have um, influenced us certainly in good cases helped us but this stuff and this that whole human condition. I mean, a lot of people they they survey feel alone. Ironically, even when they're surrounded with a lot of people. Um, so I wanted to bring that out in a in a maybe an exaggerated, magnified way through Silas's experience. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, perhaps in the last segment, this this story does end on an upbeat note, um, uh, although it does uh, address some pretty dark issues about foster care and, and parenting and childhood. Um, let, me, uh, let me ask you this. Um, how does that turnaround occur? You know, we hear stories, um, horror stories, about kids who grow up in foster care and then occasionally we hear that one where uh, a, a child is adopted and, and um, you know really becomes part of a family and, and it's, it's all kind of uh, corrected before they leave home mm-hmm. um, without giving away too much because I'd like people to read the story well of course um Silas does get adopted. I won't say by whom. Uh, there's characters in the story that we get acquainted with. And there is that happy ending. I kind of gave it away with that incentive to read. Um, but it happens in adolescence when damage has been done. And in that long process of, well, his mom is working on this, his mom is working on that, um, and it could be an exaggerative case uh, as far as length goes. Um, he finally is relinquished and adopted when it's very late. And the older these kids get, um, the harder it is for them to get adopted because there's that understanding they have baggage and people are inviting uh, trouble into their homes, and they do need even more attention. Um, well, it, it, that, that's system. kind of that's kind of a natural thing, though, isn't it, uh, Cliff? That that 
adopting parents are looking for children to raise rather than adopting, say, a troubled teen, for example. Yes, yes it is. It takes a special person to do that, and exactly, people want to raise a child and make a difference from that incipient stage. Kids grow out of the foster care system, and, you know, when they're 18 in a lot of uh, states, they're just given a check, and they're let go, and they, they're put in a place, and they wind up homeless. In fact, uh, a statistic two or three years ago revealed that 30% of homeless people were in the system. So that reveals a lot, too. And they call that aging out. Exactly. That's that's the term. They they get to a they, they turn eighteen and the and the state uh, you know they they become fully emancipated and the state no longer has any responsibility for them and uh, as you say they they end up uh, homeless and and worse probably in some cases. Um, and of course there are some good fast foster care homes. In fact, this this one he's in at at age eight is one good one and there's some really terrible ones and i wanted to give that you know array of differences and differences of intentions and differences of effects and uh, hopefully at the end the reader understands that all those uh, good inputs into his life are what helped preserve him and, and made him resilient and it's interesting it, it's interesting that that um, that you include efforts by his mother to, you know, take him back and and try to raise him, um, and and you refer to a lenient judge that allows this to happen on at least one occasion, um, and yeah, it's. But isn't there sort of a bias by family courts and divorce courts to keep children with their mother, their birth mother? That's been the problem. And um, while it's ideal and um, it's probably divinely best, it just doesn't happen. While there are people out there willing and um, able to make a lifetime commitment to a human being, uh, sometimes there's stumbling in the process. And um, unfortunately, in family courts, a judge is the decider, unlike criminal courts where you have a jury of your peers who make the decision. Um, a judge is, you know... Um, view is what calls the shots and he has different factors that make him make a decision and there are different laws also that make him make a decision but um, you know people know how to play the system including um, parents who are remiss like Maureen Silas's mom what prompted you to um adopt children. You already had children of your own. <laughs> Interesting question. Um, 
my wife and I, unusually, were friends when we were kids, and we became uh, high school sweethearts, and we always had this, you know, inclination, and we even talked about it when we were just dating. I'd like to take kids in, or I'd like to have an orphanage, and all these big, big ideas, and so we got married uh, at 22, and we had a daughter, and then we had another daughter who later passed away. My wife was uh, no longer able to conceive, and we took a step, even though, despite the fact that you know uh, finances weren't best. We just took the first step toward one child in South Korea. Um, that unfolded, and then we're praying people. We felt like the Lord would have us do it again. We did it again in 90, and we did it again in 94. And as I mentioned, we got tapped out with funds, so we said, let's go domestically. And um, we adopted uh, a daughter from Brooklyn. Um, she was biracial. And then another son from the Bronx in New York. They're like foreign countries, too. And he is biracial. <laughs> and we had experiences with the local New York City court system. And afterward, we adopted a five-year-old. All these adoptees were under age one. We adopted a five-year-old. We went to Ethiopia, and he's now 18. So our kids range now from 38 to 18. So anyhow, we did that. We did that thing. And that was our dream. We had eight kids. Did, did you and your wife uh, start out always wanting a big family? Well, you know, that was the, the ideal dream, which was impractical. And, you know, I'm a, a high school English teacher. My wife's a preschool teacher, so we're not wealthy and again it was one step at a time and we made a lot of sacrifices and lo and behold we look back now uh, it happened i mean eight kids is a lot of kids and obviously six of them were not biological uh, but interesting philosophies come through that you know we we realize each one of our kids was chosen and, um, ironically adopted kids even though they're adopted, you know, in infancy, they have a view of themselves as being rejected by their natural parents. But in reality, they're, they're chosen. We, we have biological children, and they're what we get, what God gives us. They're not really <laughs> chosen. Come out with DNA, yes, that's part of both of us, but everybody's different, as, as we understand it. So, you know, an adopted child should feel like he's special because he's chosen and uh, obviously uh, we have a, a faith system and we believe um, the New Testament and there is that theme of adoption you know we're, we're picked by God we're welcomed and invited by God each one of us to experience relationship with him and to ultimately get into his house what um, what made you uh, start writing? I would think with uh, as big a family, it would be difficult to find the time. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
that's another that's another thing. It's, I was one of those kids who, you know, I was good in the in gym class. I was good at lunch, and I was good only in English. And I liked to write as a kid. And I said, "Hey, I'd like to be a writer." So I moved in that direction. I became a teacher. Not many writers do writing for a living these days because there's so many out there. Um, but I. I'm, I'm a storyteller, and uh, how'd that happen? Working and um, with a whole bunch of kids was really by piecemeal. I'd be into a story, and I'd have insomniac nights, and I'd, in a fever pitch way, put together a few chapters. I'd put it down for two months, and it's a it's a long process, but it's a broken process. So that's how it will happen, and I, I'm still writing. I'm writing my wife's biography right now, and when I find time, I do it. Or when I can't sleep. <laughs> well, that's that's um, that's fascinating. I, I, I'm always curious about the writing process, and that you're able to set it down and pick it up, and you know, and, and do that. Because I, I talk to some writers who who basically binge write. They they go in a room or a cabin or something and they don't come out till they have a book um and then there are some that are that are very disciplined who every day write a certain number of pages or words and, and uh, to be able to do it piecemeal like that um is is kind of interesting yeah it's uh i'm, I'm envious of those writers i mean i'm 62 and i'm working on number four so as a a person who enjoys writing it's not really very much <laughs> <laughs> is this a, a a strange time to be um trying to get a book out it is a strange time um the personal computer has just opened up all sorts of horizons um there's a lot of uh um, vanity presses now, which, you know, I would never advise because it can be costly. Sure. Um, uh, print on demand has helped and, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but there are so many books out there. It's a very flooded market. And, um, a big part of this is the marketing, which I'm not too good at, but I, that's why I like an opportunity like this to, to bring some exposure to my work so that maybe, you know, that could get picked because there's so much out there. Well, on that note, Cliff, we're Good. we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to I, let listeners know where they can find out more about you, about this book, and about other projects that you're doing. You have a website, right? Yep, cliffschrag.com or cliffordschrag.com. Spelling is S-C-H-R-A-G-E, and, um, yep, you can pick it up through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and um, I really appreciate this, Tom. Well, Cliff, thanks so much for sharing your story, both in the book and uh, today on the show. I appreciate you as well. God bless you. All right. Have a great day, and uh, stay safe. Author Cliff Schrag, his book is uh, is called Silas Dillon of Cary County. We're going to take a short break, but lots more of the Tom Sumner program is straight ahead.
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19, where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. A place where you never get harmed. A man.
magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hey this is first ward city councilman eric mays and you're listening to the tom sumner program Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, I'm going to uh, tell you this, this story. We're, this is a game that we played when we, were, when we were kids, and it's called Buck Buck. We played it in Philadelphia. Buck Buck. Now, you people out here on the West Coast probably know nothing about it. Uh, in New York, it's called Johnny on the Pony and other things. It's where f- uh, five kids line up, you see, and they bend over. They're in a straight line. They bend over, and one kid grabs a fence or a wall or a pole, holds on to that. The next kid puts his right arm around his waist, you see, bends over, tucks his head under, and you got five guys lined up exactly like that. <laughs> so they all look like a long horse. Now... The object of the game is that one at a time, one by one, kids come running up and they say, Buck, buck, number one, come in! They run up, leap in the air, and they land on the horse. And they keep going, bam, 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 until they collapse the horse, you see. Now, that's the object of the game. Then you count how many kids you held and you, you go back and forth, you see. Now, we had the champion buck, buck team of the world. When I tell you we played buck, buck, there was nobody that whipped us anywhere, man. And you can tell kids that play a lot of buck-buck because they're built like this, you see. And their legs are only four inches long. That's all they have because they've been crushed so much. So we're around there practicing buck-buck number five. Land on each other. Some kids come down from the rough part of town. And they're really tough, man. They got toothpicks on the side of their mouth and a hat on sideways. And they got their pants on backwards, you know. Just rebelling against everything, you know. And it's... Listen, we're here, you're supposed to be so tough, we challenge you to the Buck Buck Championship of the World. So we said, all right. So I line up, turkeys. So we line up, five of us. Whack. They start sending kids down. Buck Buck number one, come in. They feel pretty heavy, man. We check them out. Guys have rocks in their pockets to make them way heavier, you know. And Buck Buck number two. Now they get up to 300 and it's really heavy. Buck Buck 300, come in. Now they're on top of us, piled all the way up to the sky, and they're rocking back and forth. Hey, whoa, uh, hold on, Harold, I can't do it no more, guys. Come on, hold on, Buck Buck 400 coming. <laughs> we collapsed. All right, how many did you hold? We held 400 of your guys. Well, that was pretty good, but we usually hold around 600. <laughs> all right, we line up. They line up. Send the first kid down, old weird Harold. All right, Harold. Buck, buck, number one, come in. These guys are really cool. What was that? A mosquito? <laughs> you guys don't have no weight. Come on, let's go. Buck, buck, number two, come in. I landed. A piece of paper. Somebody threw a piece of paper on top of me. Buck, buck, number three. That was nothing. Four, five, we got the championship. All right, bring out your last man, you turkeys. Come on, bring him out. Come on out. Fat Albert. <laughs> Fat Albert was the baddest buck-buck breaker in the world. And he loved to hear us call his name. Fat Albert weighed 2,000 pounds. 
and he kicked the door to his house open. And you could hear him say, hey, hey. We built a little ramp for him to walk down so he could build up speed because he couldn't hardly run fast. And he was coming, hey, and the ground's trembling. Trees falling over. Buildings losing pieces of brick. Parents taking kids off the street. Hey, hey, hey. And these guys are said, what's the ground doing? Shake it, man. How come the ground's shaking? So that's Fat Albert coming for you. Hey, hey, hey. And he turned the corner and he saw one leg. What is that? So that's Fat Albert. Hey, hey, hey. And they stood up. We give. He ain't falling on us. Now, I told you that story to tell you this one. Now, guys, guys in my neighborhood went to great lengths to scare anybody. Because it's a great thing when you scare somebody. They lose their cool completely. That's the only time when a human being is really himself. I mean, because if you scare somebody good, they just, the legs shoot out, the hair stands up, the eyes bug out, and they say, blah, blah. Yeah, see? And then you laugh. Ah, 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 that was really funny, man. You got so scared. Ah. So, guys found this statue, stole it, really. A statue of Frankenstein, five feet, eight inches tall, in color, of the monster. Frankenstein was, ooh. They take it home, there's only three of them, take it home, they take it into an apartment building, put it up on the third floor landing, you see. Now they take out all the lights in the hallway, put in a pink one right by the monster statue. One kid gets behind it, they send another one out in the street, he calls a kid. They come running up, he passes the kid with the statue, taps him, kid with the statue leans it. Kid that doesn't know anything about it turns around and kills himself running out of the building. You see, this is called fun. Cause then you laugh at the guy, boy you were really scared, man. you fell 12 lights of there, that was really funny. So, I'm coming home from the store, about 8.30. No, I always have my music with me. I always have to hum my music because monsters cannot attack you if you have your music with you. See? Hey, cars! What? Come on over, man. You should see it. Herman's getting a beating. Let's go watch it. Herman? Yeah, I love to see Herman getting a beating. And I jump, man. I... And I'm chasing after this guy. I can't wait, man, to see Herman getting a beating because I don't like Herman anyway. And he goes up the second flight and says, wait for me, man, wait for me. Don't go so fast. And he makes that turn around the third. And I make the turn. The guy takes a second. I never touched one step. Ran two miles before I realized what had happened. When I turned around, they were right behind me laughing. Funny man, guys rolling, kicking the feet up in the air on the back. You was really funny, boy. You were really cool, man. You just lost everything as well. Your hair was standing up and everything. That ain't funny, man. You can kill somebody like that. 
suppose somebody wouldn't look at that statue and their heart just stopped pumping right away. Or the guy would have just fallen down some stairs and hurt himself. That ain't funny. Yeah, but God, you just see yourself. It was really funny, man. You just went, true. Didn't even touch one stuff, man. It's really cool, I'm telling you. <laughs> Listen, guys, now you gotta get somebody. Yeah, that's right. Get up in the hallway. Get the statues up. Come on, we're gonna get somebody. I'm gonna scare somebody now, boy. It ain't gonna just be me, I tell you that. I get somebody killed around here. It'll really be funny, because when they leave that statue on him, oh, that'll be it for them. And I'm waiting outside. Is the thing up? Yeah, okay. Here we go. Anyway, somebody's gotta come sooner or later. I'm gonna get somebody. And I hear off in the distance. Hey! Fat Albert. Hey! I said, hey, Fat Albert, come here, man. You should see Herman. He's getting a beating. I like to see Herman get a beating. Now, Fat Albert is not too fast, see? So I run up and I grab my arm. Come on, Albert, hurry up. And I start hitting him behind the back. Hurry up, man. Did you see it before it's over? We go up the second flight. I start laughing because I know what it is. And turn around. Come on, Albert. We get up to the third flight and the guy's there. Oh. I forgot I was behind him. <laughs> they, uh, they took me to the hospital and they put me in a bed beside a wino who was run over by two kids. And we both agreed that uh, frightened children are really uh, hard to get along with. I never had a guy dance on me so long. And he was so scared he couldn't even get a hey. He was and just dancing right on me forever. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Taylor K. Mejia coming up in the next hour to talk about her uh, series, Palo Santiago. We'll be right back. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. 